0: turn in the scriptures to Isaiah, and prophet Isaiah in chapter 6, our passage this evening is verse uh, Isaiah 6 verses 5 through 8, what well, we're going to read beginning in verse 1, and so Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 8, and hear our God speak, and before we hear our God speak, let's pray and ask for His blessing. Gracious Father, thank You once again that You speak to us Your Word and You grant to us what a great provision and privilege to hear You speak. And so, Father, grant us now ears to hear, eyes to see Your Son. Help us to contemplate Your majesty, Your holiness, Your glory, and how we ought to respond to You, the living and true God, And so, Father, give us a sense of what Isaiah saw and felt and was convicted of on that day he saw this vision, that we would be the better for it and be the better prepared to face this world which hates you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 6, verse 1, these are God's words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, And said, Lo, this half touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Those are God's words. On last Lord's Day we examined the vision the prophet Isaiah saw as he received from the Lord that vision when he was called to be a prophet, when he and right now is being called to be a prophet, a vision we learned of Christ sitting on the throne that we heard this morning where Jesus again tells us so in John 12, at the one on the throne in Isaiah 6 is him. What is God, children? Levi, what is God? God is a spirit, right? God is a spirit. And God is a spirit, right? And yet, here, He has come down. He condescended unto Isaiah in a vision to give Isaiah a glimpse into the grand throne room of Jehovah. And to do so, the Lord shows Isaiah, Christ, through what looks like to Isaiah a physical manifestation of Christ Jesus before He took on human flesh. And the same for the seraphim. The seraphim are also spiritual creatures, spiritual beings, and yet here in the vision they had an appearance. Because the Lord stooping down to give Isaiah a glimpse of the reality of what is... In the spiritual realms of heaven. And praise God for that because now we have a description of that in His Word. And yet, as He stoops down, what do we learn in the very first verse? We see Christ as though He has stooped down and yet He is high and He's lifted up. Too high. Too high, even for the seraphim who do his will perfectly. And so, because he is so high, they cover their faces and they cover their feet because in comparison to Jesus Christ, holy, 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 though they themselves are holy, they are not holy in the way the Lord and Christ is holy. We examined that, so we examined Christ and all His majesty and holiness and His presence and His glory. But now we come to the passage where we see the prophet Isaiah's reaction to seeing this vision from the Lord. And so the first point, the first point this evening, the alarming holiness of Christ. The alarming holiness of Christ. Verse 5. Then said I... Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's first response at seeing the majesty and the holiness and the glory of the Lord in Christ is being completely alarmed. He says, Woe is me. We examined woe recently. Isaiah immediately sees himself a sinner. He is immediately overwhelmed with a sense of what he deserves as a sinner destruction, death. At the hand of God. Remember the seraphim were so in awe, thought they themselves are holy, though they themselves are holy, yet cry out, holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. They were filled with reverence for Christ's holiness and His majesty, His glory, and they covered themselves because in His presence, in His presence, though they are perfectly holy, He is infinitely holier than Eternally holier than them, as Creator and independent. You remember, we heard this morning as well. Now consider what sinful man is before this Creator, this God, Jehovah in Christ. He is undone. He says, woe is me. He doesn't ask the question, what shall become of me in the presence of the Holy One that he now sees? He knows automatically, woe is me. Because He is in the presence of the Holy One. He is. There's only one response. There's no question that needs to be asked. He doesn't need to ask the question. He knows. He knows by seeing and by hearing the seraphim call out and cry out. There's only one response, and that is woe. Woe destruction despairing he says for i am undone i am destroyed i cease i am ruined he's cut off cut off that that's language of excommunication right he's cut off the seraphim praise with holy lips and yet isaiah a sinner he ought to praise this god that he sees through manifestation physically But how can he praise Him in truth when he is a sinner? He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. In himself, he's utterly unfit to draw near and be in the presence of God and and praise the Lord with psalms on his lips, right? He's, He's unfit to do that, to sing the praises of God. How can we sinners like Isaiah ever be accepted by God? Well, friends, too easily. Uh, we should have an understanding here that too easily we come before our God in Christ. When we come in prayer to Him, when we come in worship to Him, we come too easily. Do you really think that you are holy, not, holy enough to come so easily before Jehovah? Even the seraphim do not come so easily as we do. Even the seraphim, because of the sheer utter holiness of Jehovah, come before him covering themselves up because they are not holy enough as creatures independent upon him. How can we come so easily then if if not even we being we're not even perfect, sinless spiritual creatures when they don't How can we? And so they reverence Him. They cover themselves. They don't come so easily. And we treat Him as just another person. We come before on earth, but He is so high. And He is so far above that. Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I am lower than low. And I am cursed. I am destroyed. I am undone. That's the proper response to coming into the presence of Jehovah in Christ. Especially if we are sinners. And we are all sinners. Woe is me, for I am destroyed. Undone. Cut off because of his own sinful lips. But also because, he says, he dwells upon the earth. Among a people who are just as sinful as I am. Who have just as sinful tongues as I do. And so he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And yet the people he dwells amongst are the covenant people of God. And he's undone. You see, what Isaiah sees is something very alarming, troubling, fearful to him. The Lord's holiness is alarming disturbing to our sinful flesh. Because it causes us, it will cause all people to exclaim, woe is me! The unbeliever on the last day will cry out, woe is me! God won't even have to say anything. As soon as they come into His presence, they will cry out, woe is me! Because His holiness is so frightening to us sinners. Sinners. And he dwells. We learned last, lords, Day, he dwells in thick darkness. Remember when the the ark of Solomon, First Kings eight, he brings in the uh, the has the priest bring in the ark of the covenant, and they set it in its place, and they leave the holy of holies, and that uh, and the temple is filled with smoke because the presence of the Lord came down, and so he dwells in unapproachable, right. Smoke, this darkness, thick darkness, morally pure, and holy is the Lord, perfectly so. Isaiah, in comparison, is... I don't even know what you say. He's unclean. Unclean! Unclean! He declares, unclean! Like the leper we heard this morning, unclean, grotesque. Gross. Isaiah beholds the glory and holiness of the absolute sovereign, the King, who is over all. He says, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord, Jehovah of hosts. Christ the King who governs and commands the angelic multitudes, who has need of nothing and no one who is before all things. Isaiah sees the glory of Jehovah. John 12, the glory of the Son, King Jesus. He is overwhelmed. Like Peter in Luke 5, but perhaps more so. Luke 5 says, And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net broke, and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished. Friends, it's in the sight of the exalted majesty and glory of God that overwhelms this man and ought to overwhelm us when we come to worship every Lord's day. Isaiah was already a believer. He believed the promises. He had faith. It was credited to him like to Abraham. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified. He was credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who he was beholding now with his own eyes. And so what? So Isaiah already knew of the grandeur. He already knew of the majesty. He already knew of the holiness and the glory of King Jehovah and Christ. He already knew. And this was a reminder But a completely shocking experience of a reminder. The Lord's holiness and majesty and glory brought right not only to his eyes, but to his heart. Where he couldn't avoid Christ's holiness right in his face. And so, Isaiah had to respond this way. Because the Lord's holiness was brought right to him. To the core of his being. And so he responds with an increased sense of what? His own sin. My friends, this is true of all of God's people, for all Christians. When all Christians, true believers, are blessed with a renewed sense of Jehovah's holiness and majesty and glory, they are driven see, to, to see themselves as the greatest sinners. We see a couple of examples of that in the Scriptures. Right? I won't go over those, but we hear those for that phrase, the chief of sinners," and it's that they are moved to great feelings of being undone, despairing. But for Christians, they are moved to turn and seek assurance and the certainty that they are His from the word and the promises of God. There are many in the church who fake who, lie, who fake an appreciation for God if they come as we heard before, they come too easily before Him, which we are all guilty of. And so their assurance is really shallow. They are the ones who are tossed easily to and fro by every wave of circumstance that comes. Every thing that comes. Not just by every wind of doctrine, but by every thing that happens. But friends, more the more we perceive God as He really is, and who He is, the more we examine the foundations and study the sufficiency of the Savior to take away all of our sins. The more we will find our only hope is in Him. And the greater assurance will follow. And as Isaiah sees this vision of the holy, holy, holy King, the Lord of hosts, who is Christ, he finds No comfort or relief in the fact that compared to the vast majority of Judah that he was great. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't say, well, look at them in comparison to me. I am way holier than they are, which he possibly could have done, but he can't do that. Not before the Lord of hosts. He couldn't say that he was more righteous. He couldn't say he was a great Christian man. There's no comfort that he is righteous from comparing himself to others who are in covenant with God. And yet, we're rebellious. A Christian life is not one of comparison to other Christians. It never is, never will be. You don't see him saying that, do you? There's nothing here of that. Well, compared to these people over here, I'm pretty good. No, he stands before the King, who is three times holy, thrice holy, and he is undone. There's no comfort Found there at all. Why? Because now He stands before Jehovah and Christ. When we draw near to the living and true God who is holy and arrayed in majesty and glory, we should be filled with fear and trembling, coming to a greater sense of our sin and despair. And how we need to know that there is nothing but His words then, which can calm our fears and deliver us from such terror. Isaiah doesn't separate himself from the people to compare himself with them, but he puts himself with the people. I, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So they surely are. We would all agree just reading the first five chapters. They are a people of unclean lips. But how could Isaiah say he's one of them? Because in the comparison to the holy God that he sees before him, he's no different. He's absolutely no different than any of them. He's saying, it's not just me, it's all of us. All of us are not fit to draw near to Jehovah in Christ. He's saying that about every single one of us here tonight. None of us are fit to draw near to Jehovah. If this is the response of the Christian or the justified believing follower of Christ and Isaiah at the presence of the holy and glorious and majestic God of heaven... And for the unbeliever, it must be even worse. A profound fear of the Lord and knowledge of all your sins before Him, how you're utterly unclean before Him. If you're an unbeliever, then today you ought to know how unfit you are to draw near to the Lord, for He is holy, holy, holy. The unbeliever needs to know this reality of who God is, what He's like. Because you will, every single one of us here, whether a believer or unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever, you will eventually come before His presence like Isaiah is seeing here in the vision. As all people will on the last day of judgment. And you'll see this holy, holy, holy God. There are many unbelievers today, many covenant people outwardly today Who believe too easily that they are forgiven. Not because they are forgiven, nor because they trust in Jesus Christ, but because they have no real sense of what God is really like. Because pastors and elders don't preach and teach it of who God really is. Maybe you do not have Isaiah's trouble, his despair, or his fear. Many do not have Isaiah's trouble because they have not seen Isaiah's God. But they will. And you will. When every eye shall see him. The automatic response of the unbelieving multitudes will be to do what? We are taught in the scriptures what will happen when they come and they see the Lord. They will wail. Automatically. They won't need to be taught, oh, this is God, this is Jehovah, and this is what's going to happen to you now. It's like a classroom setting, and that's not what's going to happen at all. He's going to come, and they will know, and they are going to wail. Revelation 1, it says, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. As soon as they see the Lord Jesus, King Jesus, there will be no explanation at all given at the time. It will be unnecessary. As soon as they see Him, they will know who He is. He's the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And all along they had been pretending or living outside reality, but all that wishful thinking, the dreaming, it's now ended. They see Him for who He really is. And they wail. They know the sight of His glory and His holiness tells them that they are ruined; that they are so full of sin, and woe is them. Who can conceive of the horror of discovering God as really as He really is, with and and having an unrenewed heart before Him? And unprepared when you come to the judgment. All of, you, all of you here today seek to be at peace with Him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we're in the ear, in a moment, while you're in this world, putting away the imaginary gods, the false gods that often lead us to ruin, do lead us to ruin. One sight, beholding the glory and holiness of Jehovah and Christ, will convince all that the Word of God, Christianity, the Gospel, the Covenant of Grace, it was all true. And it was all right. It was all good. And everything else is a lie and vanity and evil. And will be destroyed. And so friends, face reality then in this world for each one of you will face reality in this life or the world to come. You will face God who really is. And this is what he's like. Isaiah teaches us what he's like for the sinner. And the church, friends, has little sense of sin today. The reason is not because there isn't much sin there. The reason is not because there's not much sin to be made aware of, or that, that there... There's not sin to be aware of. There's sin. There's sin all over the place, and the, the bride, and it's rampant sin through the churches. It's because there's little, so little of the true knowledge of God. For Isaiah shows us here, when we come to a true knowledge of God, no one needs to tell us. We know by being in His presence that we're sinners that we are unholy, that we are undone, and there is deserving much woe to us and judgment. And that is why there is so little sense of sin, not only in the world today, but in the church. Because we are not preaching and teaching God and who He is. We teach about what God does, perhaps more than we teach about who God is. But the overwhelming explanation of lack of sense and awareness of sin is not due to an absence of sin, but to the absence of reality concerning the holiness and glory and majesty of God. When Isaiah, godly as he was, received this vision of God in Christ, he responded as what? Woe is me. For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If that is Isaiah's response, consider, friends, your own sin. How easily do you sin? Think upon and meditate upon the holiness of Jehovah in Christ. How then can you continue in sin against this God? We must turn from it today and pleading for mercy in Christ. Well the second point this evening, the second point this evening is the purging of your sins. The purging of your sins, Verse six, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. The coal comes from the altar, and there's a question of which altar is being spoken of that the coal came from. The vision is that of the temple. And, and so we ask, is it the altar of incense? Because there were coals on the altar of incense. Or was it the altar of sacrifice, where the burnt offerings were offered? And we understand more, perhaps, the altar of sacrifice more easily. That's where they offered the sacrifice the animals. There are of course, coals there. And so, uh, looking more at the other, the altar of incense, Leviticus 16, "...and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord." And his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. It's within the Holy of Holies in which the Lord, uh, which Isaiah is now seeing in the vision. And so perhaps more evidence that it is the altar of incense that these coals come from. But it says here that there are burning coals from off the altar. uh, And... uh, those coals were brought from off the altar, what we just read about, of the altar incense to be brought into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Which, again, that fits our passage as well. The grand scheme of things, because people question this, and it doesn't say which altar, I probably say it leans more towards the altar of incense, but it doesn't really matter which altar. The picture is clear. Sin is purged through Sacrifice. Whether the altar of sacrifice or whether it is the altar of incense signifying acceptable prayer to God through sacrifice. The result is the same. So the focus is not here on the altar. We won't focus on that anymore. What is before us is the forgiveness of sins through sacrifice. And all the sacrificial system was meant to do what? As we've studied, to teach us that salvation is through Christ and His atonement, His final sacrifice there on the cross. That's what the sacrificial system was all about. That it came by a great high priest of His people, the offering of Christ. For Christ offered Himself a sacrifice for sin. The teaching here is acceptable with God. Forgiveness is through God's appointed sacrifice. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament all pointed to Christ and His sacrifices. So Hebrews 10, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It's Christ that does so. And so the whole purpose of the temple, ceremonial worship, was to point to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that Lamb of God is Jesus Christ. And so the coal that's taken off the altar and placed upon the mouth, touching the lips of Isaiah, is a symbol showing the cleansing power and healing power that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it says, And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Your iniquity is taken away, set aside, and, and, uh, and that, that sin is purged. That word, the sin is atoned for, purged. All of this points to Christ. The forgiveness of sin is in Christ alone. The seraphim, the holy creatures who cover their faces with their, and their, their feet and, and fly with the other two wings, doing the Lord's bidding. Everything He commands, they do. And Christ commands one of the seraphim to action. To confirm that in His holy majest, uh, majesty and glorious appearance and presence, Isaiah, your sins are forgiven. You're saying, Woe is me! For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But you're forgiven of your sins. You're no longer undone. You do not need to be in my presence. Because you are clean by the blood of Christ. And so the sign, the symbol of the coal, used here has... Meaning, And that meaning is found in the word that is spoken. The coal has no meaning outside of that word spoken. Right? We don't know what the coal means until he speaks. And this is the same thing as a teaching moment. This is the same thing with the sacraments. The signs and the seals of the sacraments, the signs have no meaning unless the word of God is spoken to give them Meaning. And so that all the administration of the sacraments must be accompanied with the Word. The Word preached. The Word expounded. The Word. Baptism only has meaning because of the Word. Otherwise it's just water. We don't really understand what that means until God speaks to us and tells us the meaning in His Word. And so today what is true? It's the... What is true is that the sacraments, friends, since the Word is so destitute in the churches, these signs and these seals are meaningless rituals. Much like Romanism, Roman Catholicism, where there is no understanding given by the Word. There's no prophet. Where the Word is not preached, even God-given signs become what? Superstitious. If If the Word is not spoken, then men... Uh, immediately work from their own imaginations to come up with a meaning to attach to the sign they're seeing. Even to these God-given signs. So man-made signs, we know, are utterly vain and filled with superstition, tradition, and our vanity. And so this is why the Word must always be accompanied Accompany, God-given, God-instituted, signs and seals, sacraments, friends. Remember Adasa? When she was baptized in the hospital, the word was read, it was preached, it was sung. The word, friends, accompanied the sign and seal, because without it, it would have been mere superstition and vanity. True religion engages the understanding of the mind and the heart. Any religious exercise that does not engage the understanding is automatically wrong and sinful and vain. Now here we are also learning that the purging of sins, the forgiveness of sins is not automatic. Isaiah comes. He is undone. He can do absolutely nothing before this holy, holy, holy God. It is Christ who comes to Isaiah through the seraphim. It's Christ's prerogative whether or not He forgives. Forgiveness is God's right. It is His privilege. It is up to Him. It is not up to you. Just as if you are to forgive someone, it is not up to the person who has wronged you of whether you forgive them. You decide if you forgive them or not. How much more the God God who... Uh, has told us to forgive, as we heard this evening, and commanded us to forgive. It is up to him to forgive or not. Forgiveness is not to be assumed or presumed upon the Lord, friends. Forgiveness alone comes from the mouth of God, from His Word, and that's what we hear here in verse seven. Who does Christ say is forgiven? Or are forgiven. The seraphim comes, he declares forgiveness to Isaiah as the mouthpiece of God. The seraphim is the mouthpiece of God. Now we don't expect angelic messengers communicating like this for us. Uh, this was a vision after all, those visions have ceased. But uh, that he teaches us here something. We have the written word of God. We have the declaration of Christ's word. This is why ministers and elders have been granted the keys of the kingdom. Not that they have any power in themselves to declare and say, you're forgiven, like a priest in Roman Catholicism. They have no authority to say that. Uh, Pastors and elders and true ministers of Christ. But they declare what God says about forgiveness. They declare those... What God says about who is forgiven. The Word uh, says that those who are Christ, those who are born of the Spirit, those who are trusting in Christ alone for their acceptance before God, that they have the benefits and blessings of the covenant of grace, they have the benefits and blessings of atonement, and they are forgiven their sins. And no one else is forgiven. Only those who Jehovah declares are forgiven in the Scriptures are actually forgiven. The Scriptures are clear concerning the description of forgiven sinners. Forgiven sinners are those united to Christ. And there's, as we learn in Sabbath school, there's a whole host of truths that must be true if you're united to Christ. They trust in Christ. They depend upon Christ as the one who bore the woe for them, the, the judgment for them, the wrath of God for their sin. They and they only are forgiven their sins. Men may declare others to be forgiven. As much as they desire and they want to do, they can do that. But they are not forgiven, unless and truly forgiven, unless Jehovah and Christ says they are forgiven in His Word. And you're not forgiven yourself unless God says so in His Word. Those who left up false religions of the world and people will come and like universalists and, and whatnot, and people will come and say that they're forgiven. They're forgiven because they're sincere. And they're seeking after a God. And they don't get the, the right God, but that's okay. They're forgiven, they're sincere. No, sincerity does not bring about forgiveness because God doesn't say it does in His Word. The whole world could say whatever it wants to about those who are forgiven. To say who is forgiven and who is not forgiven, but that does not make it so. Only the God of the Word makes it so. It's only true if God says it is. Only Christ could send the seraphim to say, thine iniquity is taken away, thy sin purged. Only Christ can say to the the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Only God can say that. Only the Lord can say to those who are in union with Him, and to them there is no condemnation, there's no judgment, there's no woe. Your sins are forgiven, your sins have been purged and atoned for. The Word does not say, if you are sincere, then you are forgiven. The Word does not say that if you trust in yourself, if you trust in priests and their man-made sacraments and all the papacy, that they are forgiven. No, the Word does not say that. The Scriptures don't teach that everyone is forgiven. The Scripture teaches that those who are forgiven are those who are born of the Spirit, are united to Christ, and depend upon Him alone for their salvation. If you have seen in God's Word Jehovah's holiness, become gripped with the holiness of the Lord in Christ, and you will find that forgiveness of your sins is the greatest of blessings. It seems a small thing to those who have not understood the Lord. But to those who have beheld His majesty, and beheld His glory, and beheld, uh, beheld His holiness, what a blessing to know, like Isaiah here, that your sins are forgiven, your iniquity is purged. Ephesians 1, it says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. In Psalm 130, asks the question, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who shall stand? That's what Isaiah feels. Who can stand? No one can stand. But there is forgiveness with Thee, that Thou mayest be feared. And that's a reaction, an emotion, and a desire we ought to have, that he would, we would fear the Lord if we are forgiven. Friends, turn today from your sins, and turn to Christ in faith that He would forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you by His Blood and declare thy sin purged. The third and final point very quickly. The calling of Jehovah. The calling of Jehovah. Verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, that's Isaiah. Then said I, here am I. Send me. He can't say that unless He's forgiven. Christ calls out with a question, not because He didn't know the answer, but He condescends to ask the question. And His grace granted to Isaiah brings about a response. It was needful that a forgiven Isaiah, humble by a sense of his sin, verse 5. Remember what we heard last Lord's Day, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God, that one who is called by God to preach, to be a prophet, must have a great sense of the greatness of the Lord. And he knows that greatness now. And so he's been humbled by a sense of his own sin. he understands more so the majesty, the holiness, the glory of God who was calling him and the assurance now of the great blessing of forgiveness. He needs all those things if he he was to be a well-motivated servant of the Lord and not fear man because what was going to happen to Isaiah? The same thing that happened to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They'd be attacked even by... Their own countrymen by the covenant people of God. And so he has to be well motivated to serve the Lord. And so humble a grasp of the majesty and holiness and glory of God and assurance of forgiveness. What do humble, faithful servants of the Lord require? A humility under the majesty and holiness and glory of the Lord and an assurance of forgiveness of their sins in Christ Jesus. And this is true in part for each one of us, each one of you. Friends, you cannot begin to serve the Lord unless you have a great sense of His glory in your own sins. That comes, hopefully, in salvation, when you're justified, when you believe at the first and repent of your sins. You you come to this great sense of the holiness of God. And you cry out, Woe is me, and you confess your sins before the Savior and you plead to Him that He would save you. Only in Christ, who was crucified on the cross and died for our sins. What use is it? And there are many like this in the church, friends. What use is it to serve the Lord if you don't know Him? Those pretending righteousness can't truly serve the Lord. If there's no true sense of sin, if there's no faith in Christ, if no faith in Christ, no, no love of the Lord, then no true, happy, joyful service to Christ. And so what do we see? This past week or a week ago, two weeks ago, there was a PCUSA minister who wrote this long article about why he quit. Uh, ministry, why he quit being a pastor. And it was all about himself. It was nothing. There was nothing about Christ in it. There's nothing about how great God is. Well, I know why, and you know why he quit the ministry. Why he quit being a pastor? Because he wasn't called. He was not a Christian. He was not there to serve Christ. He was there to serve himself. And so we need to begin here. With who God is. A sense of our sin and the assurance of forgiveness in Him. And so those pretending righteousness, they can't truly serve the Lord. There's no sense of sin, there's no true faith in Christ, If no faith in Christ, no love of the Lord, then there's no true, joyful, lasting service to Christ. It will all fall apart and come to nothing. He calls to you, serve the Lord with gladness. How can you do that unless you're forgiven in Christ and know what Christ did for you even when you see Him as Isaiah saw him in holiness? When servants will have to endure affliction and heartaches and attacks and opposition and loss and sin, what did he need? What did Isaiah need? He needed high views of God. He needed a low view of himself and the assurance of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. The man who has those things with love, uh, with love uh, for God, will be thankful to God. Will serve God. You might not be called to be a prophet or a minister or an elder, etc., but you all have a calling to serve the Lord according to the duty that He has put before you. Whether wives or husbands, children, worker, whatever it is, you have a duty to the Lord to serve Him. You all have a calling to serve the Lord with gladness. And can you say in truth, friends, Jehovah, I am your servant. Are you humbled by the great sense of your sin before the holiness and majesty and glory of God? Are you assured of your forgiveness in Christ alone? It is only then when we can serve the Lord from the heart And seek the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that we could spend ages and ages on on this chapter. We're thankful that You teach us Your Word. You teach us about Yourself. You show us what and how we ought to respond to who You are through Your servant Isaiah. And so, Father, we know that we are weak in this. We do not respond this way. And so, Father, humble us before Your throne. Grant us by Your Holy Spirit the heart change, the change of our desires and the change even of our emotions and feelings that we would tremble with reverence and awe when we come to worship You. Not that we shouldn't come, but that we should come with such reverence and such awe. And we come in Christ and by His blood, knowing we are forgiven, that we might worship and serve you with gladness. That's our desire. We pray that you would make it true of each one here. If there are any who are in their sins, unbelievers... Amongst us, even the covenant people of God, Father, we plead that you would grant them a sense of what will be true on the last day when they come before you and what will happen. That they would turn today from their sins to you. Father, may there be none here who are eternally destroyed because they so callously treated and heard Your Word and hardened their hearts. Soften their hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.